Our Father, we would ask for insight and understanding to your word, for that obedient faith to respond and to be convicted of the truth of your word. We would ask, as we humbly now come before you, that you would be our teacher by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. would invite you to open Westminster Confession, chapter 21, as it's printed in your order of worship. It's also in the back of the Trinity Psalter. As well as, let's turn in Scripture to Deuteronomy, chapter 12, and 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Deuteronomy 12 and 1 Corinthians 15. How grateful we are that we have a confession as a whole chapter on worship, summarizing the teaching of Scripture on this very important life of the church. Last time we considered sections 1 and 2, who is to be worshipped. The confession is telling us that all people know that they are to worship God. We are to worship the triune God. We are to worship the triune God alone. And we are to worship the triune God alone through a mediator, Christ alone. The rest of the chapter of 21 answers the question, how is God to be worshipped? And when is God to be worshipped? Tonight we'll be looking a little bit at the answer to the question, how is God to be worshipped? What's the standard to measure what's okay for worship? How creative can we be? What do we do Sunday in worship? Is it just a matter of personal preference or tradition or culture? Why? Why do we do what we do and who says so? As Oz Guinness has noted, much of modern evangelicalism has built the church on sola cultural instead of on sola scriptura. But questions about worship are not primarily cultural questions. It's not a matter of what's traditional versus contemporary. It's not a matter of personal preference. All questions of worship are, first of all, questions of theology. As Vander Lu put it, whoever takes the little finger of liturgy soon discovers that he's grabbed the whole fist of theology. So the question tonight, how do we worship? What does the scripture say? And we can only answer that question if we're answering, first of all, who is to be worshipped. God is the object. God is the reason for our worship. We have gathered to ascribe to him his worship. And so, since he's the focus, he has every right to tell us how we may approach him. Tonight, we'll consider the teaching of the confession as it's summarizing scripture under these two thoughts. God's prerogative in how he is to be worshipped, and secondly, God's prescription for how he is to be worshipped. God's prerogative in how he is to be worshipped. He has the right to say how he is to be worshipped. And the second part of the first section of the catechism reads, or the confession reads, but the acceptable way of worshipping the true God has been instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations or devisings of men or the suggestions of Satan or under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. It's clear enough, first of all, the Scripture tells us that wrong worship is what Scripture 
prohibits, of course, any suggestions of Satan or under any visible representation. The second commandment of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 4, reads, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Second commandment is saying, you shall not worship the true God with inventions of your own. You cannot create your images of God, even in your mind, and certainly not in any physical representations, and you're certainly not to bow down to these things. Second commandment is warning us against worshiping God in the ways that we design. It's not enough to approach gods in ways that we think are meaningful to you or that feels right. Worship has to be bound by the word of God. Wrong worship is, first of all, then, what scripture prohibits. And I think that's clear enough. We can all agree on that. But it goes beyond that. Wrong worship is something else. Wrong worship is also to add where scripture is silent. The confession says worship is limited by his own revealed will. Scripture has to tell us how to worship. And so that it's... You notice the section concludes, in any other way not prescribed, not directed by Holy Scripture. John Owen put it, Scripture contains all things necessary to be practiced in the worship of God. So just because all people know that there is a true God and he is to be worshipped doesn't give the right to the people to start with their own ideas according to the imaginations of how God will be worshipped. Only the Scripture Ligon Duncan writes, God's word must supply the principles and the patterns and the content of Christian worship. True Christian worship is by the book. It's according to scripture. The Bible alone ultimately directs the form and the content of Christian worship. We cannot know God in as far as he has revealed himself to us in his word, and we cannot worship him apart from how he has revealed himself in his word. Riken writes, there's a God we want and the God who is, and the two are not the same. The only way to be sure that we have the whom we worship right is to worship according to God's written self-revelation. The Bible's very clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God has revealed how we are to worship him and actually uh, is given to us how we are to come before him and only in those ways. Calvin put it, that's lawful worship, what the Lord has established himself. Only what the scripture gives to us can we use in worship. And that has come to be known as what the regulative principle, what regulates our worship. The Bible alone answers that question, how we are to worship God, not the church, not us, not culture. Wrong worship then is What scripture prohibits, certainly, but it's more than that. Wrong worship is to add where scripture is silent. Or to put it in the positive, we can only have in worship what God has prescribed, what we can conclude by God's word, and that's all. Anything else is sinful. Any worship not directed by scripture is forbidden. Many people have heard G.I. Williamson's expression as he summarizes the regulative principle What's commanded is right, and what's not commanded is wrong. 
But I think the word command is unfortunate. It's not the best word to put in that reminder because it's not used in the confession. The confession says prescribes, which is broader and wider than commands. It also includes what scripture infers. So the better word is prescribes or directs. Regulative principle means that everything that we do in worship, we have to be able to see it in scripture. That will include commands, the explicit directives. We're commanded to have prayer. We're commanded to read the scripture. We're commanded to have offerings. We're commanded to have the sacraments. But there's also implicit requirements, isn't there? There's no commandment to have baptism service in a Sunday morning worship service. But you infer that because you have the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper. There's also deductions from general principles of Scripture, which are good and necessary consequences. There's no command in Scripture to have women partake of the Lord's Supper. But the Scripture teaches that all may partake who have made a profession of faith. There's no command to have the call to worship or benedictions. But we infer these from what's mentioned in scriptures, what the nature of worship is and what we're about, what's happening here. Wrong worship is to add where scripture is silent. Why? Why is it wrong? Well, extra biblical worship. That's our sinful default and God knows our sinful default. We will make images. Our sinful default is to bring in our own ideas, our own images. We prefer sincerity and emotion over truth and faithfulness. We want to please ourselves rather than God. Calvin summarized the human mind as a perpetual factory of idols. So when God regulates worship, he's protecting us from from ourselves. But also, why it's wrong is that extra-biblical worship is, is not loving God. You've heard of love languages. What communicates to you that another person loves you. Some people will have the receiving of, of gifts. Uh, that communicates love to me. Others will be just spending time or touch or words If a wife's love language is just being together, spending time with me, but the husband instead just keeps buying her gifts and doesn't spend time with her, she doesn't feel loved. And he's either selfish or clueless. So too, God is saying, here's how to love me. This is how you come before me. This is how you express your love to me in what I command and coming the way that I have said. That's what he's told us. How is God to be worshipped? Well, he has the right. God has the prerogative in how he is to be worshipped. Let's expand that some more. Secondly, tonight, God's prescription for how he is to be worshipped. And let's look at how this Scriptures give us the regulative principle, a little bit about the history and the boundaries of the regulative principle. The scriptures for this regulative principle uh, found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, Exodus 26.30, here's the template for all Old Testament worship, the building of the tabernacle and 
God's word says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. And so Moses completed the tabernacle, Exodus 39.1, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Worship was to be according to God's pattern shown on the mountain, not the people's prerogative, not the people's sincerity, not the people's feeling, not the people's creativity. Look what happened there. It came out with a golden calf. Only by what God says. You have Deuteronomy 12 open before you. Let's read verses 28 through 32. And you notice it's addressing the question how God should be worshipped in verse 30. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you are not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve or worship their gods, that I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. That rule is given in the context of, here's worship. Here's how you acceptably can come before the Lord. Don't look at the nations. Don't look at all those people around you. Don't bring in cultural ideas. I will tell you how I am to be approached. Don't add to it and don't take away. We have the example of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10, you remember the account there. They're entering in and they're just offering perfume and worship. But it wasn't authorized. God had not revealed it. What happened to them? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Good intentions are not good enough. In all areas, especially in worship, You must submit. We must submit to God's exclusive right and authority over us. We worship only in the way that God has revealed to us in how we are to worship him. Another very powerful example is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and 15. If you have chapter 15 open before us, the back story is, of course, David is moving the ark and Great pleasure, great joy, great cost, great effort of many people. But the ark was being transported on a cart, which God had forbidden. And sure enough, they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan and the Levite Uzzah, reached back to steady the ark so that it didn't fall in the dirt and the oxen stumbled. But when he touched the ark, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand on the ark, and he died before the Lord. They left the ark there for three months, and then they tried again, but this time was different. First Chronicles 15.2, the instructions were, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. They went back and redid, rebooted 
What are the instructions? What has God told us how to do this and how to move the ark? And they did it right this time. So what was David's conclusion? What did the whole nation learn? First Chronicles fifteen thirteen. Well, we did not inquire of him according to the rule how to do it. The NIV says in the prescribed way. God has prescribed how he is to be worshipped. And only that is how we are to come before him in worship. Now it's true that we must filter the specifics of Old Testament worship through the cross of Jesus Christ. There's not a direct continuity between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship because Old Testament worship was based upon the sacrificial system, the types and shadows of Christ to come. And when he died and paid for our sins in full forever, the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom and the whole sacrificial system, the sacrifice of blood for atonement was concluded because he has paid in full forever a full atonement for all sin, for all those who trust in him. And so we have access to the throne of grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. So there's not a direct continuity between Old Testament and New Testament worship. It has to go through the cross of Christ. But the principle of worship where God has set the terms that he is unchangeable and he has said, I will tell you how to come before me, that is not changed. Where did he give now in the New Testament the right of the people to create their own way to come before him? He's not removed that principle. In fact, he has strengthened it. We see it in the New Testament in Mark 7. Jesus said, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. What did the Lord tell us about worship that comes from the ideas of people, not in the scriptures? He calls it, it's it's vain, it's of no value. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient for the whole Christian life and certainly for worship. If we think we need more than scripture to tell us how to worship God and his beauty and his glory, that's to deny the the wisdom and the fullness of scripture. We don't add or take away from scripture because it is sufficient. The new covenant that we are in has not removed the second commandment, or that abiding principle that God alone reveals the way that we are to be reconciled to him. The new covenant has opened the door wider to God through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the fulfillment of the work of Christ on the cross. But that does not mean that it's given us freedom to open other doors to God. There is a God we want, and the God who is, and the two are not the same, The only way to be sure that we have the whom of worship right is to worship according to God's written self-revelation. Isn't this the, the gospel itself? This is the pattern. This is the parallel what's shown to us in the gospel. Since Adam fell in rebellion to God, we have all been born sinners and rebels our darkness, and we will not come to the light. But God has provided one way of redemption, one way of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Jesus is the only way to reconcile us back to the Father because of his work upon the cross so that all who put their faith in Christ will be saved. God has the prerogative to declare to us there is one way to be saved and no other. It's in the same way that he has the prerogative to say, and there's one way to come before me in worship, and no other. That's why the second commandment says that God is a jealous God. He wants that exclusive love from his people, the exclusive worship of his people. And we show him our love to him by submitting to his commands. James Bannerman, the fundamental principle that lies at the basis of the whole argument is this, that in regard to the ordinance of public worship, it is the province of God and not the province of man to determine both the terms and the manner of such worship. Those are some scriptures for the regulative principle of worship. What about the history of the regulative principle of worship? Some have times have said, well, that's what you Presbyterians, you're unique in this whole area. It's not accurate. John Calvin said, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. That's the regulative principle. Belgic Confession, Article 32 states this as well, rulers of the church may institute and establish ordinances, quote, yet they ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things Christ our only master has instituted. And therefore we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatsoever. Also the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 96. It's true that the regulative principle of worship really was burned into the Presbyterian identity. Many of the Puritan Presbyterians went to their deaths for standing for this truth of Scripture under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. They stood against the British monarchy. Will the Church of England keep reforming or will they not? the position of the Church of England, 39 articles. The church has power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority and controversies of the faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written. We'll say, of course. (laughs) But that doesn't go far enough. It's not only to say we won't do anything contrary to Scripture. Scripture says more. The Bible says You can't do anything in addition to scripture. And that identity distinction is still among us between the Lutheran and the Anglican and the Presbyterian churches. The Lutheran Anglican churches use the scriptures as a negative filter for worship. They won't do anything in worship or they're not supposed to do anything in worship that the Bible forbids. But the Reformed understanding of scripture is and, comma, And we're not to do anything in worship unless it can be prescribed by Scripture. So the Scriptures of the regulative principle, some history. What are the boundaries of the regulative principle? We need a lot of wisdom, a lot of caution, clarity, communication, 
as we discuss this matter in the life of the church. And let me give you several boundaries. First of all, the regulative principle of worship is only a principle of worship, a guide. It's not a fully detailed program. It's not a fully detailed procedure. That's where the regulative principle can get in to be really misapplied when it's understood that God has given us all down to the last detail. No, we, we refer to our directory of worship. It's not a manual. It's not as the 1662 Book of Common Prayer for the Anglican Church where strictly regulating all the churches have the identical form of worship on the very same Sunday. It's a manual. It's a directory of worship. It's a regulative principle guide. That's the first caution. Second caution is that it only relates to the elements of worship, the what, the stuff that you put into public worship, praying, singing, reading scripture. It doesn't address how. It doesn't address when. It's addressing the elements of worship, the what question, not the how, not to the form of worship the way the elements are carried out. So, for example, we sing hymns. That's an element. But the form is, do you sing older or newer, or words on a screen, or with hymnals, or with accompaniment, or not? Regulative principle doesn't deal with that. It's dealing with the stuff, the elements of worship, or prayer. Larger Catechism says, and you can use the Lord's Prayer as a form of worship, of prayer in public worship. It's the elements of worship, the stuff, not the forms, and not the circumstances which deal with the when and the where questions, the practical, cultural ways that you put together a worship service. So the element would say the command is to worship on the first day of the week, yes. But the when question, the circumstances, do you schedule a morning service or an afternoon service or an evening service? For the circumstances of worship, we can use sanctified reason, general revelation. The confession says, chapter 1, there are, quote, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence derived from 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. What a helpful application this is as the gospel goes into other cultures and into other countries and missions. When the missionaries first left the northeast United States and went to Brazil, they built churches with slanting roofs. Well, in New England, a slanting roof had a purpose because you had snow in New England. There's no snow in Brazil. Why are your roofs slanted? Because culturally they were coming thinking, well, this is what a church looks like. No, it's not. If it's that even a circumstance of worship dealing what and when and where, that has nothing to do with the regulative principle of worship. We have to be careful as we sort through what are cultural expressions and that they don't rise to the level of an element of worship. 
the OPC General Assembly report, quote, too often in the history of Presbyterianism, debates about worship have run aground because on at least one side, sometimes both, matters of form and circumstances have been escalated into an issue of the regulative principle. The Bible does not give us any order of worship. It doesn't instruct us how we conduct a worship service beyond having the elementary elements. Every session has the, the right to order their own worship service under the OPC directory of worship. The elements of worship, the stuff that you do on the Lord's day. But every church will not have the identical worship service. That's not the regulative principle. All recipes for an omelet will call for an egg, I think. But there's lots of different recipes. From the OPC General Report again, it's fair to say that no end of confusion has entered discussions of worship in Reformed churches, not to mention the bitterness and even unnecessary divisions that may have resulted because of the failure to appreciate this distinction and carefully weigh its implications. Three boundaries of the, West, of the regulative principle. One, remember, it's only a principle, not the details. And two, it only relates to the elements of worship. What do we do in worship? Not form or circumstance. And third, the regulative principle of worship applies to only what we do in public worship on the Lord's Day at the services of the assembled church. It doesn't apply to Sunday school. It doesn't apply to Christian school chapels. It doesn't apply to family worship. It doesn't apply to camps or colleges or weddings or other gatherings. It doesn't even apply to whether a church may have additional times of gathering for worship other than Sundays. It's not addressing the question. Sometimes you will hear a Christian that's trying to wrestle through the regulative principle, well, shall we celebrate Christmas? Shall we celebrate Good Friday? Or those questions of when to worship fall under circumstances of worship. They're not under the regulative principle of worship. And so the Reformed Church on the continent emphasized the Lord's Day, but also the five evangelical feast days of Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, acknowledging the events in the life of Christ were very legitimate times of gathering for worship apart from Sundays. The second Helvetic Confession, 1561, contained the following, quote, Moreover, if the churches do religiously celebrate the memory of the Lord's nativity, circumcision, passion, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the sending of the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, According to Christian liberty, we do very well approve of it. End of quote. How is God to be worshipped? It's his prerogative to tell us how he is to be worshipped. And his prescription is only what is prescribed in scripture. May the Lord awaken his church, return us more deeply to reverentially understand his law to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul, to love his worship, to love his glory. It's the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 28, that tells us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Shall we pray?
Almighty God and Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is clear. It is the lamp to our feet. It is sufficient for life and godliness that the man of God may be righteous, equipped for every good work. Thank you, our Father, that you have revealed to us the way to be reconciled to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have revealed to us the way that we can bring you our offering and praises of worship. Why you would stoop to the likes of us and to receive from our hands and mouths worship. But you have. And so we come as children so grateful that there is a way open before us. May we treasure this and may we give thanks and may we show you our love in coming to you in the way you have prescribed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.